you're listening to Life of the Jet, about stories and careers of the Jet alumni community. Continuing on with the theme of adventuring, my guest on this podcast has had many career permutations. And because I forgot to record her self-intro, I'll be doing it for her. My guest is Regan Solotki, who is currently the Executive Director at Inuvik Community Greenhouse, as well as Town Firefighter and Counselor, and currently resides in Inuvik, a Canadian town located within the Arctic Circle, making her the northernmost person I have had on this podcast. We're also joined by one of Reagan's doggy good boys, who can be heard sometimes walking about in the background, just in case you're wondering. Speak to you at the end of this episode. to live in Japan as an adult. I went to Komazawa Koko in Tomokamai when I was in grade 12 or grade 11. Um, and then I had an exchange student come live with me for a semester. Um, so when I was in high school, I took Japanese. So in British Columbia at that time, um, you either had to take four years of French or two years of French and two years of another language to graduate. Mm -hmm. And my high school offered a lot of options and one of them was Japanese. Mm. So in my Japanese class, we got this amazing deal that we basically had to pay our flight from Vancouver Island to Vancouver, and we yep. got a month paid to go to Japan. Wow. Um, because their school had to do this reciprocal exchange, and they paid the majority of the cost. So my family didn't have a lot of money, and it was a perfect opportunity to go to Japan. And I'd studied Japanese for two years, so I was like, yeah, this is great. And then went and lived with a Japanese family and couldn't say anything. <laughs> My Japanese was terrible. Like I could do a Jiko Shokai, I could do some very simple things and it sucked, it was embarrassing. And my family was lovely and you know, I, I had a really nice um, host sister who came and lived with me for a semester as well. And you know, her and I could communicate okay, but mostly in English. Mm. Um, and I realized that I really hadn't learned anything living in, in BC studying Japanese. So I really wanted to go back after university. And I actually was supposed to go to Antarctica with um, a study, um, it doesn't matter what a study with my degree that I was doing and mm -hmm. it fell through. So I thought, well, I'll apply to go on these all, all these work in Japan. And at the time there was a lot of private stuff going on. This was in 2002, but the JET program had the best, um, reputation. It had been going on for a really long time. There was a lot of support government-wise. There was a lot of support like for reciprocity with your taxes. So it didn't seem as daunting and scary. The wages were very clear cut. Um, I had a really good friend in university who was on the JET program. So she had had a great situation um, in Fukushima. And I was able to get a lot of information from her and see what it was like. So I ended up going to my interview and actually funny situation my interview was terrible it was like the worst interview of my life and i am a very confident person when it comes to selling myself i'm really good at getting a job i've told people before if i can get an interview that job is mine <laughs> the jet program was the worst interview of my life it was terrible <laughs> like there were three people there was an old japanese man a young canadian guy and a young woman or an older Canadian guy and a young woman. And the woman was really nice. And the Canadian guy seemed to hate me. And the Japanese man slept. 
through the whole thing. He said his eyes closed and was like head down and had nothing. Like it was so bizarre. And I was in this really fragile emotional state. My grandmother had just passed away. I'd had to like push aside the interview for two weeks. And then I got very drunk the night before the interview. Cause I was like, well, there's no way they're going to take me. I was extremely hungover. <laughs> and I go into this interview and every question was met with that didn't answer our question. Can you try one more time? And I would, answered again and then they'd say, yeah that didn't really answer our question but let's just move on and they did that every single question and i was like what is happening here i mean i was like 22 i i had way too much confidence in myself and i was like but but that my answers are fantastic like and it was finally to the point where i was like this is ludicrous like there's no way they're gonna accept me i don't know why they're wasting their time and Finally, the guy's like, well, you know, you didn't really answer your questions. Do you, have, do you have anything you can tell us? And I was like, look, I've been studying Japanese since I was 18 or 16. I lived in Japan. I'm going to Japan next year. The JET program is my first choice. If you are not going to choose me, I'm sorry to have wasted your time, but I will literally get up on this table and sing you a karaoke song if that proves to you that I really want to go to Japan and be a teacher on the JET program. And the Japanese man looks up from where he's been like snoring down at the table and he says, do you know the Dixie Chicks? And they're like, okay, thank you for your time. Goodbye. And like, kicked me out of the door. I was like, what just happened here? I was the first person I know to get a a letter stating I was accepted to the JET program. Wow. It was bizarre. And I honestly, like, in retrospect now, I'm like, they were trying to rattle me. Mm. You know, my resume is great. My My references are great. My essay is really good. They're trying to see how I react when someone says they don't understand me, because that's what they kept doing, basically. Mm. I don't understand, I don't understand, I don't understand, which anyone who's been on the JET program knows, that is going to be the next year to six years of your life, is I don't understand, can you tell me again? And it paid off, I guess. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) So I ended up in Annaka City in Gunma for my first three years. I was a one-shot, which at the time was really common. Um, I went to something like eight elementary schools once a week. I would go to a different grade at a different school. And then I I was a four-day-a-week junior high school ALT for the rest of my time. Um, It was pretty uneventful. I was in my 20s. I partied in Tokyo a lot because it was an hour and a half away. (laughs) I made lots of good friends. I, uh, I was a part of the NHK kimono contest where I wow. learned how to put on a kimono and had to do it on TV on a stage. Um, it was pretty uneventful. Like it was, it was a pretty solid three years on jet, you know, the festivals and the food and the tea ceremonies and the random occurrences and all those things. Well, tell us more about the, uh, the NHK kimono contest. How did that come about? Such, such a weird thing. I, I had a friend who wasn't a jet. She taught at a private school and she knew somebody who was um, a kimono teacher. And she was trying to encourage more foreign women to take part in this um, this contest, which happens, I guess, every year, every couple of years. And it was going to be in Gunma in 2003, I guess, 2004, maybe. Um, and so we did like a, a three-month intensive, twice-a-week course of learning how to do everything. Like we did the style where it looks like a sparrow. So like it looks like on the back of you, your obi is, yeah. is really intense intricate thing and you basically went up on stage on the final day in your kimono underwear and 
built the obi and built the kimono all by yourself and you had to do it timed so you only had a set period of time i think it was like five minutes or eight minutes or something ludicrous mm-hmm. um and i came in third place wow uh, which was a little bit disappointing because the only reason i came in lower was because I don't have a lot of hair. So my haircut right now is the same as it was when I lived in Japan that time. And so I didn't have enough hair to volumize to match the kimono. But it was a a really interesting experience. And I made a lot of new friends. And it was really, it was really a wonderful thing to experience the culture. And like, I remember Friday evenings at my friend's house, we would just take out our obis and like tire obis and we'd sit around and drink tea and, and like, practice obi making like it was just such a quintessential japanese experience Mm. um but annika wasn't very isolated it was a really good experience because annika has like sixty thousand people it's an hour and a half by train to tokyo um gunma was very friendly and lots of things to do and Mm. so when i came back to canada i actually started um helping with recruitment through jet aa and through the jet program to do seminars to teach people about what JET was like and answer questions Mm -hmm. and help them. Like right before they left, I would help with like the, um, how to budget to go to Japan or how to do this or how to teach or whatever. So I did all that stuff when I was living on the West coast. Mm -hmm. And then in 2009, uh, they changed the rules for returning. So up until then you had to have not been on JET for 10 years to go back. Yep. But now they changed it. It had to be like five years or three to five years or something. So um, I was talking in this seminar, explaining to people the rules, and I'm reading off this list. And I was like, oh, it's only five years. And so my husband, I'd gotten married in that time. um, He always wanted to go to Japan. I was like, hey, want to go teach in Japan? And um, (laughs) so I went back on jet from 2010 until 2013. Right. Um, I was in, so I am a professional scuba diver and I first Mm. was put in Gunma. And so my second interview was very different from the first. My second interview was like, hey, welcome back. Where do you want to go? I was like, "Uh, (laughs) that's my question. And they're like, you already know you're going to get picked. Like, this really is a no brainer. Um, If you get picked, if you get picked, um, where would you want to be? And I said, you know, I was in Gunma and I really liked it, but most there's only like seven landlocked prefectures i'd really like to be on the coast and not hokkaido i've already lived in hokkaido ironically i hated the cold and hated the snow and yes i now live in the arctic so that's you know ironic there but i'd already done hokkaido i'd already done landlocked i really wanted to be on the coast and they said well if you don't get picked to be on the coast would you still go i said absolutely this isn't about the choice it's about like making the best of whatever your placement is which mm. was pretty much the nail on my coffin that I would have one of the most landlocked prefectures <laughs> absolutely possible. And I was sent to Gifu. <laughs> um, and not only was I sent to Gifu, I was sent to Neomura, which has about 600 people in it and wow. is an hour long drive from the closest grocery store. Wow. So Very isolated. <laughs> it was super isolated. Um, my schools, instead, I taught at one junior high, and which was in Nao, and then I had four elementary schools that I would do. So, like, four elementary? I think. I'm losing track of my... <laughs> Nao, Mochosu, Toyama. Maybe three. Yeah, three. So I did two days a week at junior high and three days in elementary, because they'd changed the curriculum to have mm. more regular English teaching in the schools at this point. 
And so I was actually classified as an elementary school ALT this time. And it was a totally different experience because now, instead of being the bumbling buffoon who comes in and has no idea what's happening, because I'd been on the JET program before, I actually was expected to write the curriculum. Wow. And teach the class and teach the class to the Japanese teacher of English in Japanese for them to be comfortable to teach the English because right. my small mountain schools were so nervous of this changeover to this level of English that was now expected in the schools. My Japanese was garbage. <laughs> like <laughs> I had I had done Sankyu, I think, in 2005. Mm. Like my I I hadn't used it in five years except for like I was a tour guide for a while and would occasionally give wine tours in Japanese, but like my Japanese skills were low. Mm -hmm. So I basically got to Tokyo, had to intensively study Japanese and start writing lesson plans right away because nobody spoke English where I lived. In the car ride to my town, I was like, they picked me up in, in Gifu City and they drove me to Matosu, which is technically the town I was in. And I was like, oh, this is really pretty, all the mountains. And they're like, we're not here yet. And then they drive me like 30 minutes north and they're like, there's one of your elementary schools. And I was like, oh, great. This is a great neighborhood. And they're like, we're not there yet. And they like <laughs> did that like two more times. There's another school of yours. I'm like, great. Is my house close by? No, we're not there yet. It was like, oh my God, where, where am I going? And my husband only lasted two of the three years. Um, he was a six foot four redhead living in a town of a few hundred people and he spoke no Japanese and it was a lot to take. But I joined um, National AJET and I was on the council for two years and I had a really good network of people and things to do. Mm. I, you know, I, I played sports, I, I ran, I did a lot of things. So I was constantly busy, but his lack of Japanese skills made it really hard for him. Yeah, 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 I can imagine. Yeah. I I, we were on jet the same time, actually. I was in Fukushima 2010 to 2011. I had a friend in uh, Minami Fukushima. Her name was Kat. But yeah, Minami Soma or Minami yes, Fukushima? Minami Soma, yeah. Uh -huh. The only reason I thought of it was because I remember clearly sitting in my school on a Friday afternoon and then all hell broke loose. Mm. And I remember like feeling queasy and not really know what was going on. And you know that feeling when you've had too much coffee? Yeah. And her and I had been talking on Facebook chat, and she's like, uh, they're evacuating my school. I've got to go. And I was mm. like, what are you talking about? And the teachers run into the staff room and put on the on the TV, and we can see what's going on. And it's just like, it's such a vivid thought in my head sometimes. Like, it just like, it's so easy to snap back there. But I lived in Gifu. So mm -hmm. my life was completely unchanged, except for, you know, we couldn't have Enkais. We couldn't buy more than two bottles of water. Like, mm. our, we couldn't use the air conditioner. Like, it my life was not affected in any way. So it's always really interesting to me, like how other people were affected. Cause it's, it's actually, it's very parallel to what's happening right now. Mm, yeah. I was very isolated. And so, you know, stuff was happening elsewhere, but like the panic I'm hearing and, and seeing on the news is not the panic of my reality. Mm. It's very interesting. It's very interesting how there's all these parallels. Like in, in this case with 2011, we actually got on the train and went to the next prefecture and went to a brewery the next day. And the our, our prefectural advisor and um, the embassy were trying to find us all. And they were mm. freaking out because they thought we had traveled and like maybe we were dead. And we're like, we're at a brewery. Like, what? What's going on? What is everyone's problem? There was earthquakes in Japan. There's earthquakes every day. And they're like, no, 
There was a lot more than just an earthquake, you dum-dums. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I was talking to a friend. Both of us, we lived through the same earthquake. We were comparing notes about the situation now and before, as you said. I guess we feel a little less uh, anxious compared to everybody else. I mean, yes. it's, it's understandable how everyone is freaking out, of course. But we've been through this before. The difference being that at least they didn't turn off the water supply to the houses like they did with us. Uh, you so still, true. yeah, you're still able to get water from your tap, and uh, it's the shopping lines is not as bad. I mean, people are starting to queue up now because they're doing the social distancing rule yeah. Yeah. Uh, outside of supermarkets here and, uh, and the major ones anyway. And you do have that invisible specter of the radiation fallout yeah. in our case and just the virus in this case. And I do remember you do see people's personality, how they would react in a crisis in this situation. The party goers tend to be the one curled up in a fetal position. The quieter people just got right down to it and quietly went about their business. It's really interesting for those of us that did live through the stuff in Fukushima and the the levels of those things compared to what's happening now, which I think is why people are still getting shit done. Like people who are on the jet program are like, okay, well, especially during that time frame, like mm. life still went on. You still have to get stuff done. Um, this is just a cold. Like, and I don't mean that to diminish it. It's not just a cold. It's killing people. It's really mm. serious. It's serious for elders and people with pre-existing conditions. Mm. But like, people are complaining about the COVID testing. And anyone who's ever lived in Japan has had that test from the flu numerous times. Like, mm. I remember having that jabbed up my nose probably three or four times a year. You know, you learn to live with a mask and you you learn all those things. So I think that like, for those of us who've lived in Japan and then went home, we have already had that isolation, whether it was due to language barriers or just sheer distance. I think that I think it kind of almost set us up for a system like this. Like this social distancing is kind of how I live my life in Japan, you know? <laughs> for those who thrive, uh, for those of us who aren't broken, I suppose, by, by <laughs> the stresses. <laughs> yeah. The, the microaggressions, I guess, like a lot of young college grads are always, or university grads are always complaining about the microaggressions after about a month or two. I got them too, in spite of looking like this. Yeah. You know? For me, it's, look, they, they're trying to grasp for a commonality or a topic of conversation. They're trying yeah. to get to know you. And for a lot of people in Anaka who've never met a foreigner before, uh, and, you know, this is, it's, it's, yeah, it's ignorance, but it's ignorance without any malice. And that's, I think it took me a really, like, I did six years on JET, and it took me a long time to learn that because mm. I'm extremely white. I'm extremely pale. I used to have very blonde hair. Um, and no matter how fit I was, I was always the fattest in their eyes. And I remember mm. two things that happened. One, I used to be a vegan. And my ex-husband and I, we only ate, like, vegan, vegetarian, if necessary, lifestyle. And I used to run marathons. And so we used to have to do that yearly health test where you have to, like, bring in your fecal. Yeah. Um, and you have to. You, you had to do and, that. Oh, yeah. You I, have to, like, scoop your poop and all that stuff. So we I did that every, every year. And so every year it would be me and the fattest guy would have to go in together and get a lecture on how unhealthy we were because we were morbidly oh. obese. 
And so the one year they actually took me into like the health center and they were like, we need to have a meeting with you about your health. And I was like, okay. And they're like, you're morbidly obese. And I was like, I ran 15 kilometers today. Like, sure. I could lose 10 pounds. Um, most of it in my breast that you don't have, but like, seriously, I'm not morbidly obese. I'm fine. And the lady's like, well, I'd like to talk about your food habits. And she was like one of those skinny fat women who she wasn't, she didn't look big, but she had zero muscle tone. And here am I who like lifted weights and ran. And I was like, Mm. I I think you're looking at me the wrong way. And she's Mm. like, no, I think you're not eating very healthily. So we need to have a conversation about your food. And this is obviously all in Japanese. And so she brings out these pop bottles and she's like, like, there's no liquid in them. It's just how much sugar per each type of pop. And she's like, all of the pop you're drinking, this is how much sugar you're ingesting. And I was like, I don't drink pop. And she goes, really? But you're so fat. (laughs) And then she, she says, so she brings out like a piece of salmon, a piece of pork and something else. And she's like, this is how much meat you should be eating on a daily basis. And I was like, I don't eat meat. I'm a vegetarian. And she's like, but you're so fat. And I was like, lady like you need to wrap this up like I'm getting really mad now and so she brings out rice and she has three heaping bowls of rice and she said how much rice are you eating on a daily basis and I was like maybe like three times a week I'll have rice and she's like that's why you're so fat and I was like are you freaking kidding me and I was like I'm leaving now and she's like oh but you can't you have to like sign off that we had this like really important health talk with you because you know if you die because you're so fat we want you to know that we like really tried with you. And I was like, I, this isn't happening. And she's like, well, could you please try your best? And I was like, goodbye. (laughs) And like, I literally had run something like 50 kilometers that week alone. I ran like 225 kilometers that month. And she's trying to tell me I'm unhealthy. And I was like, this has got to be a joke. And I went out and my husband's like, are you okay? And I was like, we are going to burn the health center to the ground. And he's like, you can just, He's like, we can just start eating rice three times a day and then you'll be healthy like everyone else. Um, and I uh, I also went to the eye doctor because my eyes were swollen. Mm. Um, and it turns out I have something called Graves' disease, which is when your thyroid doesn't work properly and um, it can cause you to have like bugged out eyes. And uh, my first time ever having any symptoms was in Japan. And I went to the doctor and I had these like, my eyes were like bugged out. And the doctor's like, okay, uh, or the nurse said, okay, um, we can help you just take out your contacts. I said, I don't wear contacts. And she goes, okay, then why didn't you wear your glasses to come here today? And I said, I don't wear glasses. And she goes, but your eyes are blue. And I said, I know. And she goes, okay, then take out your contacts. And I was like, I don't, I don't wear contacts. And this circular conversation in, in Japanese happened like six times. And I was like, I don't, I don't have any other way to explain that I'm not wearing contacts. She goes, just, just wait a minute. Wait a minute. She goes out into the waiting room and brings back a woman who speaks English. And the woman goes, um, I think you're having a hard time understanding, but you really need to take your contacts out. And I was like, I don't wear contacts. Okay. But you really shouldn't have driven here without your glasses. Then I was like, I don't wear glasses. Like this has got to be a freaking joke. And the nurse was like, we don't know how to help you. Like, if you're not going to take your contacts out, we don't want to do anything to your eyes. And I was like, ah! <laughs> So wait, wait, wait. They thought you needed a visual aid uh, of some kind because you had blue eyes. Yep. Where the fuck did that come from? I don't know. But it, it wasn't the first time. That happened in... Uh... That happened one year, and then the next year during my health exam, they did a 3D image of my eye. 
And the doctor like freaked out and was like, you need to go to a specialist like right now. Don't drive your vehicle. Like go get your eye checked and eyes checked. And I was like, I'm not what? No, no. Mm. And so for a year, for a literal year from that health check to the next one, I refused to drive at night. I made my husband drive all long distances. I convinced myself I was going blind. Like mm. I completely made myself think I was going blind. And the next year I have my exam and the doctor speaks English. He lived in America for a while mm. and he does my whole exam and he's going over all the paperwork. He goes, well, I can tell you to lose a couple of pounds, but that's based on Japanese. He's like, you're fine. You're healthy. You run marathons. Like you're obviously fit. Somebody else will tell you you're morbidly obese. Don't listen to them. Like you're in good shape. Don't stress. I know. I was like, yes, yes. can you write that down in Japanese? <laughs> Yes. And I, I was like, he's like, okay, like I'll see you in a year. And I was like, uh, what about my eyes? He goes, what about your eyes? I said, last year I was told like I was in danger of going blind. And he goes, what? <laughs> I said, yeah, I've been in like a panic mode for a year. And he goes, your eyes are blue. Your scans just look different than everybody else. You're fine. I was like, <laughs> what? <laughs> so yeah. Anyone considering going on the JET program, make sure you know your health inside out and backwards because someone will make you think you are crazy. Like, I think the term gaslighting can go straight to your weight and your health when you are a foreigner living in Japan. You will be mm. made to think you are a crazy fat person and you yeah. are not. <laughs> you are fine. <laughs> wow. I, I, yeah, I've had my once, once a year health check too, and but I've never had to bring my own poop in. <laughs> Oh, well, we had to, hundred yeah. percent. We had to bring our own poop in in a little vial that you had to scoop. It was pretty. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty intense. Yeah, but although I did have to do that whole full CT scan, uh, barium drink thing because I was oh, I was over thirty when I went on jet, so. So I and and I was told by somebody, don't drink it. You know, it's radioactive, and I was like. No, of course it's radioactive. I mean, how else are they going to track its progression right. through the system? I mean, dude, it's fine. And and it was kind of it was it was an interesting thing where they strap you into this this contraption, which then slowly spins you around yeah. and upside down. And I was thought, this is like a world's really lamest like fairground <laughs> ride. <laughs> <laughs> the slowest ride of Fuji Q is the barium uh, track. Yeah. It's funny because I actually, I was over 30 the second time I was on jet. And so mm. I was told I had to. And then this English speaking doctor was like, only if you're Japanese. He's like, it's really rare for Western people to have the same problems in their intestines that Japanese do because they eat so much raw food that mm. we don't usually have those issues. Mm. Um, but my ex-husband worked at a, a Yochian, a, like a really strict, fun Buddhist Yochian who had three English teachers from three different countries. Mm. And they had to do the worm test. Do you know oh. the worm test? No, what is that? This so is gross. the funniest thing I've ever heard in my life. And it happened at Yochan's all over Japan. And I, I never heard of this. But um, because little kids get worms so easily, mm. um, basically what would happen is they'd be sent home with this starfish kind of sticker. <laughs> that when <laughs> they would go to bed, their parents would stick the sticker to their anus. <laughs> and then in the morning, the parents had to peel the sticker off and send it to school so it could be tested for worms. <laughs> <laughs> and so my husband, before the kids were allowed to go in the swimming pool, they would have to hand in their, their 
their worm anus sticker (laughs) and they would have to get into like there'd be these buckets of sanitizer and they'd have to dip their asshole into this bucket for like a solid 30 seconds and he would have to stand there and count out 30 seconds and then the kid would get up and get sprayed down and go in the the swimming pool oh my god yeah right (laughs) it's honestly so when people are like complaining like i have to wash my hands or i have to do this or i have to wear a mask i'm like let me tell you about the anus test (laughs) (laughs) you don't even know what a hassle is this is nothing (laughs) having like my healthcare workers who are like oh i have to get my temperature checked every day or my my oxygen levels because of covid and i'm like you don't have to go to bed with a sticker to your anus life is fine you you are fine So why did you decide to leave and what did you go get up to after Japan? Um, so the first time I left Japan, um, I was, it was 2005. Mm. So I would have been my mid twenties. I, as you know, was morbidly obese um, <laughs> and lived in a small city. So it was really hard to date. And I was feeling like I was, I was really lonely and I'd been single for three years and lived on my own for the first time in my life. And like, I really wanted to move on with my life. So mm. I decided to leave and come back to Canada. Um, also, I was, I, I'd forgotten this, and it wasn't until I came back on Jet, but I was starting to get really jaded about living in Japan. Mm. Um, I was starting to get that us versus them mentality that I do find people do get when it's time for them to move on. Yeah. Uh, I felt really isolated. I felt really like, I felt really stagnant in my job. I felt like, because like, I was a one shot, right? So I just, I felt mm. really. I wasn't getting anywhere. I'd see kids, you know, every couple of months and they would still not remember who I was or they'd scream and point at me on the street. And like, I just felt really dejected. So, mm. I mean, I wasn't a te- We're not teachers. We're, and that's a big thing that I think on the JET program people forget is you're not a teacher. You're there as a cultural influence, um, mm. you know, some different perspective for kids. And I really struggled with that. Mm. Um, so I came back to Canada with the idea that I was going to do all these big grand things. And I ended up working in an office as like a receptionist. Mm. And, um, from that, I, I, I moved in with my grandfather who was going blind in Kelowna and ran a tour company and worked in tour management and marketing for a bunch of years, totally off my degree. But it was just something that I learned how to talk when I lived in Japan. Mm. I learned how to tell a story. I learned how to tell a story multiple ways living in Japan. And developed a different skill set that was really good for um, this tour company. And also, you know, lesson planning and organizing a lot of schools, you get really good at logistics and figuring those kind of things out. So that all actually really helps me in that career. And I did that for about three years until I met my husband, my ex-husband. Mm. And then I've always loved traveling. So I ended up um, running a hotel and dive school in Honduras and ended up... Wow doing a bunch of things and like before I met my husband I actually lived in England for a while and um yeah so like I love to travel and and experience new things which I learned on the jet program from all the travel I did then um and then he and I decided to go back on jet which is how I ended up on in NAO but when I came back from NAO um my ex-husband had left a year early because he just couldn't handle living in that small village Mm -hmm. um and so he'd moved back to Ontario which is where he's from and so I ended up in Ontario but I'm from the West Coast, and Ontario sucked. <laughs> uh, it was awful. I met wonderful people in Ontario. Like, the people in Ontario were fantastic, 
But in the month of February in 2015, it was minus 40 for an entire freaking month. It was gross. It was cold. I'm from Vancouver Island. It never snows. I hated it. I hated it so much. I hated my job. I worked mm. as a recruiter. Like, I just, I hated what I was doing. And I had gone to the um, the jet program returner party that they have at, like, the consulate general's house every year. Mm. And I'd met this girl who also had lived in Japan years before, not on the jet program, but she like knew a lot of people on jet. And she was telling me she was moving up to this town called Anuvik. Mm -hmm. And so this would have been in 2000 and early 2014. And she was moving to Anuvik and, and she'd been offered this job as a waitress. And she knew somebody who had made $90,000 a year waitressing in Anuvik. Wow. Right. And here I am working as a corporate cr recruiter for some of the big car companies making 40 grand a year, like just, mm. you know, paycheck to paycheck like you do in, in a lot of big cities. And I was like, OK, yeah, sure you are. When you do your taxes next year, call me. And when you've made ninety thousand dollars, I'll come live there. <laughs> and she did. So she called me and she said, hey, remember, you said, let me know. She's like, want my copy of my T4s? Like, do you want to see my taxes? I made 90 grand last year. Oh my God. <laughs> and she said, how's your job going? And I said, I hate it. I hate my life. Like I, I have great friends. I have a great social network. I was doing lots of fun stuff, but work wise, I was just not. Mm. Um, and so within a month I'd moved up to Anuvik to work at the restaurant. This was March of 2015. Mm -hmm. My ex-husband was coming up in June. Um, I had no idea where I was going. I thought I was going to Iqaluit, which is on an island in Nunavut. I was going to Inuvik in the Northwest Territories. Like, I had no clue where I was going. I had no idea what to expect. I had all these images of tundra and no trees and, like, just crazy stuff that's not how it actually is. I came up here pretty much, like, sight unseen, did very little research, and just showed up and started waitressing, which, you know, I've been running a tour company. I've been running a... Uh, I've been teaching and running my own classes and then I was running this recruitment company and now I'm waitressing for six hours a day. And there's nothing wrong with waitressing. Like, don't get me wrong. A lot of people do it all their lives and that's their career. It was, it was mind numbingly boring. And also the community here has a really interesting dynamic of it's two thirds indigenous and a third non-indigenous. Um, which also I think being in the jet program really helped me because for me, I'm interested in all cultures and all people. And it doesn't matter to me what your background is, what your color is, what everything is. I've met so many interesting people through being on the jet program that I feel that I was ready for this challenge. And I've always been interested in the indigenous side of my country that I don't know a lot about. Mm. So I went up there and then found that the, the restaurant had a reputation for being a bit racist and, like, the people who work there didn't actually, like, mingle with people in the community. It was, like, super uncomfortable and awkward. And I only lasted there, like, a month. And in that month, I met tons of people. And I actually, oddly enough, my first week of work, one of my customers went to high school with me in Tomokamai in Hokkaido. Wow. I had this Japanese group. And I was like, hey, and I started speaking Japanese to them, which blew their minds because they're 200 kilometers north of the Arctic Circle. And this random white chick starts speaking Japanese to them. <laughs> and the one guy's like, oh, yeah, I went to Komazawa Koko. I graduated in 1996. And I was like, I went to Komazawa Koko. I graduated in 1996. And he's like, oh, I knew a girl who a couple girls who came. One was Erica. One was Reagan. And I was like, I'm Reagan. And he was like, what? 
<laughs> I have not seen this guy since 1995, and I'm serving him breakfast in the Arctic. Like, it was just mind-blowing. But I, through the connections I made at the restaurant, I got the job as the executive director of the Inuvik Community Greenhouse, which is yeah. an 18,000-square-foot hockey arena turned into greenhouse. And okay. I've been doing that ever since. You went from waitressing to executive director. I mean, I'm pretty so, sure your, your, prior, your prior experiences uh, running yeah, all the businesses so, to good state as well. Well, that's the thing. So my resume, you know, when you apply for a job, you have to like tweak your resume. It's like, I've done this, done this, and done that. They were looking for someone with like three years of marketing and, and tours, did that with the tour company, you know, five years of education, did that in the jet program. Um, this many years of, uh, HR did that with recruitment, like everything they were looking for. I had from my previous experience. Plus I went to the Swedish university of agricultural sciences in Uppsala, Sweden. So I have an mm -hmm. agricultural background. Like I, I ticked all the boxes and I was there. So I had all these, this history of the stuff they were looking for. And I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. They didn't have to fly me in. They didn't have to wonder if I was going to want to live there, mm. live here. Um, and yeah, so I've been there for five years. I have expanded so that we now run programs in seven fly-in communities uh, where we hire indigenous people to run their own gardens. Yeah. Um, I teach people how to garden. I'm actually teaching online next week. People how to do basics of gardening and sprouting and stuff like that. Mm. Um, I'm also a firefighter, um, which I never would have been able to do in the South because I'm 40 and five mm. feet tall. And so here I'm not only a firefighter, but I drive the big trucks and I pump the water. And um, I'm also a town counselor, um, yeah. partly because of my council experience with National Agent. And having mm -hmm. to learn how to work within a large group of people and work with governance and those sorts of things, um, yeah. So <laughs> there is, there is. Oh wow, which one do I tackle first? Anybody <laughs> like. Let's start with the greenhouse project. The actual mandate of the greenhouse is mm -hmm. to promote community through gardening. That's right. number one. So it's for anybody and like any person in this community can become a member of the greenhouse and we have 200 garden beds. And so 10% of them are set aside for market gardens where I grow and then sell at markets at uh, the market. And then 10% are set aside for community groups to come in and do like therapeutic gardening and grow food for their programs. And the rest are given out paid for um, people pay to use the plots to garden for their families. Mm -hmm. um, and then that's the main, that's the main project. That's the, the mean potatoes of what we do. But back in 2015, the local government, the government of the Northwest Territories built greenhouses in the seven communities around Anubik. So that's Sikachik, Fort McPherson, Aklavik, Tuktiuktuk, Palatuk, Ulahuktuk, and Saks Harbor. They built them these greenhouses and they basically just built these greenhouses and walked away. Mm. And nobody knew what to do with them and how to run them or what to grow or who they belong to. It was super confusing. And so and that was in 2014. So in 2015, they offered funding to the community greenhouse in Inuvik to hire a full-time year-round executive director who would part of the time help run the community greenhouse and part of the time help with what was happening in the communities. So for two years, my job was to fly to those communities three times a year and teach them how to garden. Mm. And it's super frustrating because nobody cared what I had to say. 
Um, basically, you've chosen the white girl from the South to come up and teach indigenous people how to do something on their land. It went over like a lead balloon. It was horrible. Can and imagine. again, going back to, because this is a podcast about JET, it actually, my JET teachings helped me a lot with that because people didn't care what I had to say. I, I can't relate. I can't help kids understand English if it's talking about things they're not interested in or have no basis in. So here I am in these indigenous communities trying to teach them to grow kale. Nobody cares about kale in Polytech, let me tell you. And so it took a couple years and finally we decided, myself and the board of directors of the Inuvik Greenhouse, that this wasn't working. And so I developed a program instead where I was no longer funded by the government, which was brutal. So we had to like come up with funding to pay for me, but we took the funding that was being paid for me and we split it into seven and hired seven summer coordinators that would then come to Inuvik. I would teach them how to run the greenhouse and then offer them umbrella support from a distance while they gardened at home. And while they were gardening in, in their communities, they can open it up to workshops that people actually wanted to see. They could grow the food that their community members actually wanted. If everybody just wants romaine lettuce and potatoes, grow romaine lettuce and potatoes. Like you don't have to grow what I tell you to grow, grow what you want to grow. Um, and we've been doing that for three years now. And I've traveled all over the world talking about this program and mm. the difference between empowering indigenous people and telling them what to do. Um, and so that's been what I've been doing now for the past couple of years. And this year, because of COVID-19, um, the greenhouse is shut. So mm. it's being turned into a giant farm. So um, basically, I'm farming for about 75 families that will get a weekly box of vegetables delivered to their house through the entire summer. And it's partially funded, partially paid for. Um, and we're just going to produce as much food as we can. And then I'm going to I'm also working on a year round hydroponics facility that will bring more food to our community as well. Mm. For about 100 and something days a year, we are a, a fly in only community. So it it food security is a big issue here. Uh, we've been struggling to get funding for years. But mm. because now because of this pandemic and food prices going up and accessibility is difficult, it's actually going to be easier for us to get the money we need. Like I got one hundred and twenty five thousand dollars this week to help us wow. uh, because we're now seen as an essential service. It's no longer a, a hobby gardening system. It's um, we're going to be producing, you know, thousands of pounds of food. And that's really important when mm. our road's going to close by Tuesday. So, right. you know, this makes a huge difference. Inovic, it's, it is a very interesting place. It has a mosque because there is yes. a, a Muslim community. It has a arts festival as well. So Inuvik is actually a really cool community. Um, so I know you looked it up, but it's located about 200 kilometers north of the Arctic Circle and has mm -hmm. just over 3,000 people. Um, it was created just over 60 years ago because um, the nearby town of Aklavik was seen to be sinking and mm -hmm. the people needed a place to move to. Um, most of the people of Aklavik chose not to move. And so Aklavik still exists, and there's about a 1,000 people living there now. Uh, and actually, very interesting, Aklavik's motto is never say die, because people <laughs> believe. Um, and Inuvik is known as the place of man. And it, it's it's interesting because um, in Canadian, a lot of Canadians do this whole thing where I acknowledge I'm on this treaty land or this land. We're actually on nobody's land. This is no man's land, which is uh, 
interesting that it's called the place of man and it was chosen as basically a crown land space that wasn't claimed by the Inuvialuit or the Gwich'in specifically, which are the local indigenous groups. And so it was built to be this hub that would house all these people who were being displaced. It would have a hospital, it would have a high school, an elementary school, um, all of the government buildings that were required. And so then it became a place that people moved to um, as this center for all of these needs for the community, communities mm-hmm. outlying. It used to have a really big population when it was a big oil and gas boom in the Arctic, but with the moratorium on oil and gas exploration, it's really gone down. I think our population was up to about 6,000 at one point, but there's a massive arts festival that happens for about 10 days every year, and it focuses on Northern and Indigenous arts. We have yet yeah, the most Northern mosque in the world, We have a really diverse culture, so we actually have a multicultural society, and there used to be an event once a year, but it hasn't happened in a couple years. We have a very active um, fire department, so we have about 30 members, of which we have one of the highest percentages of women of any fire department in Canada. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have a female fire chief, 50% of our officers are women, and 33% of our department are women, Mm -hmm. um, which is a pretty big deal. So why counselor? Like, why did she decide to become a counselor? So random. So I, I worked at the, I've worked at the greenhouse since 2015. And unfortunately, um, in 2000 and early of 2018, my coworker who was coming, who'd worked for me this summer before and was coming back, um, passed away Mm. and I was really struggling and, um, didn't want to work at the greenhouse anymore. But they convinced me to work part-time, and so part-time I was working for an MLA, a member of our Legislative Assembly, so a territorial politician. And when it came time for people to throw their hats in the ring for counselor uh, about a year and a half ago, people were like, Ray, you really should get involved. Like, you have, you're involved in so many things. Everyone knows who you are. Um, I'd organized a bunch of things in the community. I'd organized some festivals. I, I, I'm involved in a lot of things. They said, you know, you'd be, you'd be a shoe and I said, that's ridiculous like no one's gonna vote for me you know people are not gonna know because i have to also put my real name on the ballot which i don't Mm -hmm. go by reagan here i go by ray Mm -hmm. so like it's gonna be confusing people won't know which now everyone knows i'm reagan so it's no big deal but a year and a half ago people didn't and uh i made all these excuses and my boss was like seriously just throw your name in like What's the worst that happens? Like it's an, you know, be, it, just more people running is important. Well, not enough people ran. So I got on council by default. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I was acclaimed. Default, yeah. default. Default, default. Oh, it's so ridiculous. <laughs> um, but honestly, it's been a really great thing because I'm one of those people that if you see something, you say something, right? So like mm. if I have a complaint, I'm going to go to the town and be like, hey, I don't like how the gym is running or I don't know what this is doing or why is this happening? Because I want to be involved in my community and I want to make sure my community is the best face forward because Mm -hmm. I believe in tourism. I believe in our economy. I believe in shopping local. Um, I love living in the Arctic so much so that I bought a house here when I swore I'd never buy a house anywhere. And I bought a house here this year. Great time to buy a house, by the way. Buy a house and have a pandemic. (laughs) Um, So I ended up being acclaimed on a council and it's been excellent. Um, I've learned a lot about how communities are run. The cost of communities, even small ones like this, is Mm. staggering. The fact that communities are really just small businesses trying to figure out how to pay for everything and keep everyone happy. And, Mm. 
you know, write bylaws that people complain and want the bylaw, and then you make the bylaw, and they hate the bylaw, and you're like, ah! National Agent, being a part of that really set me up to understand how to work with diverse people from different areas and different um, agendas. Also, it's really interesting when you're actually a part of politics. Um, so one of the reasons I, I wanted, there's reasons why I joined everything. So, and they have to do with the greenhouse. So at the greenhouse, we have no water connection until June, and then it we can't connect again after September. So the fire department brings us water. Mm. In mm. 2015, the fire chief was getting tired of bringing us water. And so I joined the fire department and became a driver and pump operator so I could bring my own damn water. <laughs> In 2019, when I was when I got onto council, that year I heard rumors that the town who donates our water was going to stop donating water to the greenhouse. And so I wanted to get onto council to make sure that didn't happen. So I joined council with the idea of keeping the water flowing. And I also want to build a commercial um, compost facility. Mm. Well, once you're on council, you cannot speak about any of the things that are actually about you because it's, it's a conflict of interest. Mm. So I actually, if it comes up about the greenhouse and the water, I have to excuse myself and I can't be a part of the conversation. Mm. Okay. So it's very interesting when you actually want to be somewhere to enact some sort of change and then you can't be the person who enacts the change. So how do you get around that? Um, so the only way I could get around it, luckily the water never came up. That It was, it was right. a rumor. Um, but the thing with the compost facility, I either have to wait until I'm no longer on council or I have to get a delegate who works for me to come and bring the information mm -hmm. forward and I still have to excuse myself because mm -hmm. it can be seen as pecuniary interest for me. Mm -hmm. So it's it's really interesting. Like I can bring the issues up, I'm on the environmental working group, so I can bring the issue up of compost and I can be a voice regarding that. But if it actually came to building a facility that would potentially financially influence the greenhouse, I can't be a part of that conversation at all. Right. And I had no idea. And like, it's silly little things that I just, I had no, no clue. And that I think a lot of the times people don't understand what goes into the politics of a, a small community or a large community. Mm -hmm. um, so it's been a good learning experience. I don't know if I would run for another term on office, but it's definitely been an experience. I guess um, the moral of the story is uh, if you want to get something done, do it yourself. <laughs> yeah, kind of. great many thanks to Reagan for doing this. There were so, so many things we could cover, but we ran out of time, unfortunately. Hope you're all keeping well out there during this time of social distancing and lockdown. Here in Sydney, restrictions have eased up and people are meeting again in public and each other's homes. Hard to believe it's been two months, but that's nothing compared to being isolated by winter ice and snow every year, I guess. I'll be posting links and information to Innovate Community Greenhouse, and if you like, you can donate to keep this very worthwhile program going. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time. If you'd like to be a guest on a future episode, email me at webmaster at jetaainternational.org. This podcast is generously supported by Claire, the Council of Local Authorities for International Relations. However, it is otherwise an independent work by me, Eden Law. All opinions expressed in this podcast are solely the private opinions of the individuals and do not represent any other organization that they are connected with. 
Music adapted for this episode is Bloom by Jazzar from the album Hashtag Handmade and is licensed under an attribution share-alike license available on freemusicarchive.org.